0: Let's pray before we come to God's Word this morning. We do thank You, Lord Jesus. We thank You that You are King of kings and Lord of lords, that even now we know that You reign on high. We thank You that You are the victor over the grave, that You are the victor over our very soul. We would pray this morning, King Jesus, that you would reign over us. That you would work by your Spirit and by your word to minister to us, poor sinners who are in desperate need. We're in need of your power. We are in need of your influence. We're in need of your grace. We pray that you would grant it over these next minutes. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 6, this is the holy inerrant word of God. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly that take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In our day, uh, Matthew 7 may be one of the most known verses in the Bible, maybe no verse is more known. Uh then Matthew 7, then possibly John 3.16. We hear it all the time in our culture. It's usually the old King James Version that people quote to us, judge not that ye be not judged. And we will hear it in the question that is probably only superseded by that question, who made you the boss of me, that question of who gave you the right to judge me? And it is often quoted, but what does Jesus mean when he says this? When he says, Judge not that ye be not judged. I want to take a look at this command this morning. It's a very known verse, and yet I think it is probably also the most unknown verse in the Bible because it is one of the most misunderstood. First, Jesus is not saying that we are forbidden from criticizing anything or anyone. No, you and I, we have been given rational minds. We have been given cognitive ability. We have been given the ability to discern. That is part of what it means to be human. And so, there is nothing wrong with me pronouncing boldly this morning that beets are the absolute worst vegetable on the face of the earth. Uh, They taste awful or... It's at least what I remember my five-year-old brain telling me 35-plus years ago. And I've never gone back to try them again. Uh, It's not wrong. It wasn't a violation of this command when George Bush announced that broccoli was bad. Uh, He was wrong, uh, but he is entitled to make that critique. Some of you think that maize and navy blue are a good color combination. Uh, You have a right to that judgment. We also have the right to judge you for believing that. Jesus is not saying that we're forbidden from criticizing anyone or anything. Neither does Jesus by this command forbid our assessment of one another. No, you and I have to assess one another. That is part of of living in this world. We are to assess men when we get to ready to nominate them for the office of deacon or elder in the church. We have to assess their character. We have to assess, are they the men that are already doing the work of an elder in the midst and already doing the work of a deacon in the midst? They just haven't been ordained to it yet. We have to assess one another whether this person will make a good friend and whether I should actually reach out to them and, and seek to be friends with them. We have to assess when we're looking for a spouse, whether this person would make a good future spouse. We are assessing each other constantly. We assess whether we want to share this prayer request with someone, whether they will actually be a confidant, or whether they will go and tell everyone and anyone whatever was told to them. We are to assess one another. That is part of what we do as humans, and Jesus is not commanding us to stop them. If Jesus was forbidding us to make any judgment of others, then he violated his own command when in verse 5 he says that those who are more concerned with others' sin than their own sins are hypocrites. And then if you go on to verse 6, he makes a judgment. He judges some to be pigs and he judges some to be dogs. That's a judgment. We're commanded to judge throughout the Scriptures. And John 7, Jesus Himself, will command us to judge with right judgment, He says. Paul will tell us and tell the church in Philippi to look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. That is, you are to assess these people that are teaching you. Some of them are dogs. That is, they're false teachers. And how do you know but you assess? You critique. You judge. John will say in First John that you and I are to test the spirits. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're to judge. We're to use our critical faculties. We are to call evil evil, and we're, called, we're to call bad bad. If Jesus not, is not forbidding us from criticizing anything or anyone, then what is He commanding us when He says, judge not? No, he's commanding us not to be judgmental in a a censorious kind of way. That is, we're not to be severely critical of others. We're not to be constantly judging others. We're not to be condemning others. No, we're to be charitable. We're to be humble in our assessment of others. Judge not. That's the command. It's a command that in the original language is in the present tense, which has the sense of something that continues, something that is ongoing, continual judgment. And, and Christ is saying his disciples are not to be continually judging others, we're not to be censorious, criticizing everything and everyone. Isn't that true that there is maybe nothing more exhausting than to be with someone that feels like they are the judge of everyone else? It's constantly criticizing. And there is nothing more blind than a censorious person's heart. Maybe we could put it this way. We are to use our cognitive abilities to discern. We do not check our minds at the door when we become Christians. Though we are to continue to think. God created us to reason and think and to think through things and to think through people, but we're not to have a critical spirit. We're not to have a judgmental spirit. And being harsh in our minds, if not with our words towards others, is absolutely damaging. It's not love. And it disrupts peace. It's not kind. It's not charitable. It's not humble. And it, it doesn't take a Christian scholar to figure out that this is very antithetical to the Christian life. I want you to think with me for a moment. Think about two people that you think are very mature godly Christians. Two people. You have them in your mind. Two people. I'd ask you this. Are they critical people? Do you find that they're constantly criticizing and judging others when they're in your presence? Do you find that when you're with them, you're constantly wondering, I wonder what they think about me, because you know that they are constantly criticizing other people in their minds. Or are they the kind that come alongside of you and tend to have an encouraging word? Tend to be those that are gracious towards you. Tend to be humble in their interactions with others. It's always the latter. Because the most mature of saints are also the most humble of saints. And they are most concerned about their own vineyard, not the vineyard of others. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus gives this command after teaching for over a chapter about the morality or the morals that the Christian disciple is to have. Again, as we're in the Sermon on the Mount, He is speaking to Christians. And he's just told us all kinds of things that are to to mark the Christian's life. He said that we are to give to the needy and we are to love our enemies and we are to store our treasures in heaven and that we are to not lust and we are not to be proud. And we've heard all that. And yet as we hear that or as his disciples heard that or as we read that, we are prone, our mind is prone to wander and start going, yes, I, I know the person that needs to hear this. I wish that they had heard that. And so He's warning us not to condemn others because it is far too easy to do. That's often our temptation. Why? Why does this afflict, afflict so many of us? Why is this something that we so often do? Surely, one of the chief reasons is because it's painful to examine our own lives. And so we focus on the lives of other people. It provides an opportunity to excuse ourselves. We don't have to think about ourselves. For example, how often do we listen to a sermon and think about that sermon? I I hope that person heard that. Or if only they had been here to hear that. And all the while, it allows us to excuse having to, to think about ourselves. Maybe the way we most often do this on Sunday morning is as we leave church and as we drive home or back to our dorm and maybe in that drive or maybe as we're sitting over lunch with a family member or our roommate or a friend We ask the question, well, what did you think about that sermon? What did you think about worship today? Remember Lee and I realizing years ago that we were doing this and had made a habit of it week after week. What did you think about the sermon today? What did you think about worship today? And we realized we had become critics instead of worshipers. Maybe a better question or better stream of questions is what struck you today? What delighted you today? What stirred your soul today? What challenged you today from the word? Let me tell you what challenged me today because it is quite easy, and we are prone to it, to run to the critiquing of the sermon or critiquing of the music or critiquing of the prayers or critiquing of whatever else is going on, and it allows us not to examine our own hearts and not engage in the prayers ourselves and not engage in the words of the music ourselves. A person gripped with A judging censorious spirit will find that they neglect their own heart. It always happens. The command, do not judge, is not simply about how others might be offended by us, but the toll that it takes upon our own souls. This is part of Jesus' concern here. That's the command, do not judge. And Jesus gives us the warning Do not judge that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those who judge will be judged, but not by fellow people, Jesus is implying, but by God. And He says that the measure we use, that's the measure that will be used with us. In effect, it's very similar to what Jesus has already said in the Beatitudes when He said that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is, if we lack grace and mercy for others, that shines forth our own lack of having received the grace of God in Christ. We evidence it by our actions, by our words. Dear Carson said about this warning, he said, the judgmental person by not being forgiving and loving testifies to his own arrogance and impenitence by which he shuts himself out from God's forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Those who have received great mercy, extend great mercy. Those who know the grace of God, give the grace of God. And so he warns us, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus will later emphasize the grace that should mark his people with that striking parable of the unforgiving servant there in in Matthew 18, where there is this man that owes a great debt to his Lord, and, and the Lord has come to collect his debt. And so the Lord... This master is going to sell this man's wife and he's going to sell his children into slavery to to fulfill this debt. And the man begins to plead with his master that he not sell his wife and his children into slavery to pay this debt. And, And the master does the most amazing of things. He forgives the entire debt. He forgives it. He wasn't required to. He wasn't obligated to. It wasn't even expected. And yet He forgives, though having received nothing. And so our Father in heaven does with us. He sends His Son, His very begotten Son, into this world to live and to die for sinners that owe the greatest of debt. And we give nothing. And He forgives it. We just come to Him pleading for forgiveness and He forgives it. man in the parable, the, it is called the unforgiving servant. Because then he goes out and all of these people owe him a whole bunch of little debts. Just penance small things, and He demands it from them. He requires it from them. What kindness was shown to that servant and what hate He shows towards His fellow men. We must say that passing judgment on others is not only an act of hate against those who are supposed to extend brotherly love and brotherly kindness towards, but it is a cosmic power grab against God Himself. Because judgment is God's domain. He is judge, not us, not me, not you. Paul will bring this out in Romans 14. He uses the very same word here when he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, who? why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul is asking, why would we seek to take the role of God? And Jesus is alluding to this. It is God who judges, not us. James will bring out the same point in James 4 when he says this. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. You're a judge. And he says this, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You didn't establish the law, James is saying. You weren't the judge. God is. And when you try and act like the judge, you are usurping his authority. You're seeking to kick him off the bench. You have no right. But but James goes even farther. He says that when we do, we are violating the law itself. That is, as we judge someone else, we act as if they are below us. We act as if they are less than us. We act as if they are to be despised and we are above them. And this violates the great principle of the law, the second great principle that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And so even as we, we seek to bring the law to bear upon someone, we're violating the great principle of the law. Sadly, we often do this to those closest to us, to our family, and whether that's spiritual or familial, Notice that Paul in Romans 14 and James and James 4, they both put in their questions in terms of why would you do this to your brother? To your brother. I think only if, if we could figure this out better in our closest of relationships, they would be much more life-giving. They would be much more grace-filled. They would be much more Christ-centered. Over a, a decade or so ago, I had a, had a wife come to me in a congregation that I was serving. I had been teaching the congregation and encouraging them to do family worship at home, just where you take 10, 15 minutes together a night and read a short passage of the Bible together and pray together and maybe even dare to sing together. Uh, and she came up to me one Sunday very excited. And she said, Pastor, she says, family worship has changed our home. And I said, well, how is that? And she said, well, because it has changed me. And I said, well, how is that? And she said, well, when my husband would go off to work each day and I would stay at home, I would spend the whole day cleaning the house and and criticizing him all day. But why did he leave this? And why did he do that? And why doesn't he do this better? And why? That's what I would do all day long. She said, and then when we started doing family worship, he would come home and we would sit down to read the Bible together and pray together. And you know, it's very hard to do when you've been critiquing somebody all day. She said, I was forced to, to run to Christ and to see my need for grace day in and day out. And it required me to extend that same grace to my husband. Those who know grace, extend grace. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you the command, the warning, and now the hypocrisy. Jesus pulls no punches in his assessment of those who play the judge. He assesses them as hypocrites. It would be absolutely comical, the illustration he gives, if it wasn't so serious. He says, there's a person that has a speck of dust in their eye, and there's somebody else that comes with a whole beam in their eye. And they want to get that little speck out of that person's eye when they have something jutting out of their forehead in their own life. Jesus doesn't say here it's wrong to want to help someone remove a speck from their eye. He just says it's wrong when we ignore the beam in our own eye as we seek to help another. And that sin of censoriousness, it is, it's a beam itself, isn't it? A beam that just kind of dominates the eye, and my guess is that it usually begins with an assessment of another and an ignoring of our own sin because it's just too painful to face. And that practice of ignoring our own sin becomes a habit, and then eventually it becomes a lifestyle. And before we know it, we we think we actually think that we are in a holy state or we are in a state above others and we begin to play the hypocrite. We think we are much better than we are and we play the part. I think it just begins with just a a little bit of practice of ignoring our own hearts. Blinded by the beam in their own eye, they... Hypocrite no longer sees the sin, and they act as though they have no sin, or at least it isn't as great as other sins. A phrase in verse four, or how can you say, is, is a phrase that could be interpreted: "How dare you? How is it possible?" It's it's a. Uh, it's extreme disapproval on Jesus' part that He's communicating. How can you ever say that? How dare you go to the person with a speck in their eye and say something when you have a beam jutting from your forehead in your own eye? My daughter this week, she was working on the table, at the table doing schoolwork, and she called me over with a little bit of glee in her voice. And she wanted me to read this this illustration in her textbook at home. And so I began to read this story. The author of the book had said that when he was in school as a child, that the teacher... In the class that he was in, it said the next day they were going to have a test, they were going to have an exam. And he told them that they could all bring in a three by five card and they could write on it different answers or different things that they could then use on the test. He said, so he raised his hand and he asked the teacher, he said, can we write on the front and the back of the three by five card?" And the teacher said, yes, you can write on the front and the back. And then he raised his hand again, and he he said, can we bring in any three-by-five card? And the teacher said, yes, you can bring in any three-by-five card. And so the next day, as all these students lined up and walked into the classroom with their three-by-five index card, this young industrial boy walked into the room with a three-by-five-foot poster board filled out front and back. Now, there's a great temptation for you and I to fill out the three by five index card, just the front with our sins. And to fill out a three by five foot poster board, front and back of everyone else's sins. And just to slip ours into the pocket, just easily disregarded the treacherous and calamitous path we walk when other sins seem large and ours but very small and how how greatly that misses the mark the person who sits in judgment over others either thinks they have arrived or they are in such a holy state that they can judge others. But if we possess a new nature, then that new nature will have an appetite to continually grow in the grace of Christ, to continually grow in maturity. Just like a child who's constantly saying to his or her mother, I just can't wait to be bigger. Or as a son says to his father, are my muscles bigger today, Daddy, than they were yesterday? The Christian just wants to grow in grace. Just wants to grow in maturity because we know that we are not what we want to be. and We are not what we desire to be and we are not what we should be. It is the The constant cry of the Christian, grow me more in grace, Lord Jesus. I want to be more like you. And if we are but focused constantly upon others, that cry is no longer there because it's dismissed. It's gone. It's not a thought. Uh, We are busy regulating the vineyards of others when all the while there are different weeds sprouting in our own vineyard. Every godly Christian sees much room for improvement in themselves. And that self-knowledge should lead us to have great empathy and should lead us to have great compassion and should lead us to have great mercy towards others in their struggle. Just should. people who have tasted grace, and people who have swallowed its goodness are careful and they are slow in their judgments of others. What does Paul say there in First Corinthians thirteen? He says, Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. If not, for God's grace i would be there if not for God's grace i would be struggling with the same sin if not for God's grace i would not be as i am even if you count yourself as a mature christian it is only because of God's grace you are only what you are by His grace. And oh, how that should make us charitable towards one another. But even as we say this, Jesus isn't telling us not to help others, not to encourage and exhort others to remove sin from their lives. It's just that we're to tend to our own sin first which will always help to restrain in attending to the sin of others. He says, first take, and then first take the log out of your own eye, remove it. There is urgency here. First take it, get rid of it, be done with it, and then, he says, attend to others. And that will make all the difference in our own life, as well as the life of the person we're attending to. We need truth and they need truth, but we need truth and humility and they need to receive that truth as we come in humility. And when this is the approach we take, we will we'll see one another as fellow combatants because that's what we are. We're fellow combatants. We're fellow sinners in this great cosmic war that we are engaged in. We're, we're both casualties. We're all casualties. You will never find a soldier in a, an in army hospital ward laying in a bed next to another soldier and raise his head and look at that soldier next to him and say, "What is wrong with you? Are you stupid?" Why did you step on that mine? Were you ignorant? Were you dumb? How silly of you? No, because they're fellow combatants. They're in the same war. We all have the same need. We have this re- need for redemption. We all are in the same cosmic battle, though our wounds, our sins may be different. We are united in this, every single person in this room. We're engaged in the same battle, and we're all walking wounded soldiers. And when we understand that, it changes our approach to one another. And it prevents hypocrisy, and it prevents harshness, and it prevents criticalness. But even as we say this, Jesus gives us a final point in this passage, a caution. We have the command, the warning, the hypocrisy, and now the caution. Verse 6, it seems very odd. He says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Sounds a little odd off the lips of Jesus, especially after he just told us in chapter five that we are to love our enemies. And as he told us in the first verse of this chapter that we are not to judge one another, You see, it would be easy to fall into the trap of being undiscerning and undiscriminating. And so Jesus is cautioning us to use our minds. Use the minds that the Lord has given you. Do not give what is holy, what is sacred. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have clearly rejected the gospel with hatred and complete derision. Jesus will give similar command, uh, similar caution to his disciples as he sends them out later in the gospel when he says, when you go into a house and that house will not receive the words that you give to it, he says, you are just to shake the dust off of your feet and you are to go on. They will not receive you, they're dogs and pigs, he says. It is the uncleanest of animals in Jesus' day. And he's cautioning us that some will disregard, even some, he says, will lash out at us. They will trample underfoot and they will turn to attack you when you give them the gospel truth. So be warned. Don't be surprised. And there are times he's saying we are to move on. I find this to be one of the most difficult commands in the Bible to apply. It's not, it's not hard to move on. It's not hard not to say something to someone, but it is hard to know when not to. Because we're all destitute. We're all trapped in darkness and someone persevered in sharing the truth with us. It's very hard to know when someone is so hardened and embittered against the gospel that it is just throwing pearl before swine. It's hard to discern that. I don't know what to do but to pray in those circumstances. But no doubt one way that we can apply this truth in light of this entire text is to search our own hearts and to search our own souls. To say, how often have I been unwilling to hear the advice of others? How often have have others passed by me because I have erupted in anger or irritation when others have? confronted me, because we don't want to be the hypocrite. We don't want to find that we are that dog or that we are that pig of which he speaks. I've been thinking a lot over these past probably three or four weeks about about this passage, or at least this idea in general We live in a culture that doesn't want us to speak truth, and it it finds often that what it wants is just something that is palatable, something that is non-offensive, something that they don't find makes any demands upon them. Rightly or wrongly, people think the church is harsh and think it is critical, and think it is hateful, and think it is judgmental. I think on the one side, we have to remind ourselves that truth-telling more often than not is going to be described as such by people that don't want to hear truth. I think of our Chinese brothers and sisters that Pastor Kevin prayed for in our service over this morning, and And they are being persecuted for speaking truth. There will be persecution. There will be those that trample underfoot the truth that is given to them. And Jesus says even will lash out and will seek to destroy you because you've extended this truth. That's to be expected. And yet, I also think that we can... Clear away some of the debris that is before the church door—the door that many see and have trouble entering. The doors, because of it, is the the tone of how we say things. The unnecessary ways that we seek to judge others with a lack of humility. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. We need humility and we need wisdom. We need humility in how we approach one another and how we assess our own lives, and we also need wisdom in knowing when to speak and when not. We're people that know Christ because He has showered us with His grace and His truth. If you are a Christian, you know it because He has shown you His grace and His truth. And so we're to be a people of grace and truth. That's to mark us. That's to mark our interactions with one another and with the world outside. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful, thankful that You are a forgiving God, that even Most of us in this room have had times for sure, an occasion even more for sure, and even maybe as a lifestyle, have had a censorious mind and heart. And even such a sin is forgivable. And even such a lifestyle is forgivable in Christ our Lord. We pray that we would be people that walk in grace and in truth, people that are quick to tend to our own vineyard first, before we start attending to the vineyard of others, but also people that are not shy in declaring the truth, but knowing how to do it in wisdom and humility. May that mark us as your people. For those in our midst that do not know that truth today, we pray that they would hear that you are a forgiving God It removes not only the log from our eye, not only the speck from our eye, but the darkness from our very souls. That you are the Lord of all who forgives a debt that is beyond measure, and it gives life life abundantly to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.